This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. It's three minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.7 3RRR. You might be listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. I'm Terry Allen. And I'm Dr Beach. Good morning. Good morning. morning Welcome. Happy Mother's Day, Bron. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and indeed to all those mothers all out the mums. there lying in bed who are getting a coffee brought to them at the moment by the kids or the hubby or whoever, <laughs> the partner. Not me. Oh. I'm here. You should be doing exactly what you want to, and this That's is where you want to be. Exactly. It's Mother's Day. Go for it. That's always been my point. Yeah. They say, what do you want to do on Mother's Day? I said, I want to go and do Radio Marinara. That's right. Because that's what I do. And thank you to Tim for yet another beautiful Vital Bits. And my particular favourite was um, at about 8.30, Iris Dement singing about Easy's getting harder every day. Yeah. <coughs> it's not. Well, for some it's hard. I'm glad to say it's not getting harder for me. It is. And um, there are many, including friends of mine, um, for whom Mother's Day is actually really difficult. So, and you know who I'm talking about because you'll be listening to the program right now. So, acknowledging that too, we're not spending the day talking about Mother's Day, an hour anyway. No, we're talking about all things wet and salty on Radio Marinara. Actually, quickly before we get off the thank yous, so thank you, Tim. Thank you also to Andrew um, Minga, who's been doing this little 10 minute segment. At eight o'clock, yeah, pre-recorded, cool, called um, "Soulful Bits." Mm. Loving it. Yup. Thanks, Very Andrew. Great. All right, you were saying, Doctor Beach. It's going to be a big show. Um, I'm going to kick off talking about a couple of papers. One of which is my personal favourite this morning is a retraction. I love retractions. Yeah. Uh, that's when people <laughs> publish stuff which turns out to be dodge, as um, a good friend of mine would say. Is it uh, always for dodge reasons that papers get retracted? Uh, mostly, yeah. yeah. Well, no, 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 no. No. You, no, you can be just flat out wrong, yeah. Uh, yeah, an honest mistake. Honest mistake, I was going to say. And then yeah. you pull it. But this one appears to be not an honest mistake. Were they called all. out or...? Yeah, they were called out mm. big time. Ooh. And this, I'm, I'm talking about this because it's a paper I mentioned about a year ago which was on microplastics accumulating in Tinsy Little Fish, an experiment that was done in Sweden. Mm. And then I'm going to talk about the oldest, oldest algal fossil known because, as you know, I love algae. 
<laughs> and who doesn't, Dr. Beach? Who doesn't? That's right. You'd be, be mad not to love algae. <laughs> <laughs> then, um, Terry, you're going to bring us a dive report. Yes, a dive report. I'm going to talk a bit about the uh, banjo sharks. And because it's Mother's Day, I know we didn't want to talk about Mother's Day too much, but maybe a tiny bit about octopus love and octopus mothers. Uh, and then I'll update you on our trips around South Australia, saltwater cave diving and potential of uh, cuttlefish and whaler. Very nice. We're going to be joined in studio at about 9.30 by Tim O'Hara and he's brought a crew with him as well. Um, I think literally they're his crew. So Tim is shortly going to be leading an expedition on the CSIRO vessel, The Investigator. And uh, we need some sound effects there. Needs to kind of have some reverb. I don't think we can do that though. Merida, no. <laughs> Investigator. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, uh, they are heading off shortly on a 40, um, no, 30. Around six weeks anyway, 30-something <laughs> day. We can, Tim can tell us. Uh, expedition from Launceston up to Brisbane and going and checking out what's in the deep sea. Oh, in- I want to be on that boat. Mm. Well, maybe you could be. They've you left could ask or- him. They've I think the crew's already, said. Sorry? They've left already, haven't they? I hope not because Tim's coming at 9.30. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's getting helicoptered in. <laughs> no, he's already here. So uh, that's going to be really exciting. We'll find out what that's going to be all about. 40 scientists. Can you imagine 40 scientists on a, on a party boat? <laughs> Nerida's rolling her eyes. Nerida, who was panelling for us this morning, is like, my God, I'd rather stick pins in my eyes. This is a great episode of the Big Bang Theory where they're doing, they're off, Leonard's off on this ship and they've gone off to the North Sea and, um, you know, kind of, you kind of picture a very, very quiet, studious group of people and they're all partying hard at five in the morning on the dance floor and on, in the middle of this ship. So I'm wondering if it's going to be like this. <laughs> On the investigator. Yeah. Indubitably. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll have a chat with Tim. That's going to be really fun. And then, um, Terry, we're going to close the show and talk about cave diving, as mm-hmm. you mentioned. How about some weather, Dr Beach? Sure thing. Um, okay, 7 to 16 degrees today. Partly cloudy, morning fog patches, light winds. Indeed, it is a very nice day out there. Uh, tomorrow's going to be 17, partly cloudy. Tuesday, 18, partly cloudy. Possible shower on Wednesday was 16, partly cloudy on Thursday. So it's looking quite a reasonable week with minimums around 8 or 9, getting up to around 10 towards the end of the week. So not unpleasant at all. Melbourne does display autumn very well. And indeed, as I've said many times at this time of year, autumn is my favourite season. Went up to Hillsville yesterday. That was pretty nice. Saw some nice um, autumn colours, mm. just as an aside before I get onto the tides. I went up to Mount Macedon last weekend. Saw equally spectacular autumn colours. Nice. Mm. Yeah. Find any rotting corpses up there? <laughs> that happens every now and then. I've heard Mount Macedon, isn't it? Wasn't there quite a while ago, famous case? I'm sorry, I'm just... Oh, really? <laughs> We're looking at Nerida. Would you, would you care? Well, but I thought I heard something during the week about setting up cadaver farms and I might have been around there as well. That's always good fun. Yeah. Mm. You've just thrown my weekend so, last so weekend into a about, whole new life. I was thinking, oh. Broad's thinking about, but was that a rotting corpse? That thing I saw? Just traipsing around in the leaves, having a nice old time, not thinking about rotting corpses. Anyway, please well, do go on. Anyway, if, if you're heading out on the water today, you'll be interested to know what the tides are doing. Um, and at Point Lonsdale, a.k.a. the Heads, it was low tide at around 7.53, so it's going to be high tide at about quarter to three. If you're on top of the water, um, well under the water, on top of the water, mm. if you're trying to go for a surf. 
Um, and Dr. Surf, I, I miss Dr. Surf. We do have to get Dr. Surf back in. I feel like a complete charlatan giving the surf report. Um, the swell, uh, swell report, coin to the age, light winds, easing swells are favouring the exposed beaches east of Melbourne. Water temperature is 16 degrees. Well, it's not much information there except, you know, towards the east of Melbourne. Mornington Peninsula. So everyone head down to Dr. Surf's territory and go surfing. And go and drop in on his waves. Yes. That's right. And tell him that you want him back here at Triple R. We do miss him. Um, We're going to hear a track in just a moment, but Terry, can I hit you up firstly just for a quick update on what's been happening with um, Project Banjo? Because you've been involved with this. Yeah, I've been uh, involved with uh, Project Banjo and also the Ray Awareness and, of course, uh, PT has been in here and driving it all. And it's... uh, Looking quite promising. We've had lots of people obviously reporting terrible uh, mutilation, uh, if I can use that word, of banjo sharks and rays and uh, uh, what, what the fishermen are doing illegally, of course, is, uh, is killing the animals and then throwing them back. So they're not using them for anything. They're not using them for food. Um, and this is what we are trying to stop. So we had a shocking photo, I think, last week of five banjo sharks that have been um, sort of split in the head and it was pretty awful. Um, but the good news is that fisheries are now going to look at putting up some signs um, at the piers to try to educate people because that's obviously the best way to go about it. And uh, and also there's been some talk that fisheries are actually going to possibly look into legislation or to changing some of the, uh, some of the rules. So, um, yeah, so finally it looks like uh, things might actually be happening and, um, yeah, we're getting lots and lots of publicity. I think there's now up to 25,000 signatures on the petition page. That's so. amazing. Cause, yeah. Because at the beginning of this, I think you were hoping for maybe 2,000. So yeah. to already so quickly get so many signatures, it's it's obviously a big issue for a lot of people. And what's great is that there's even uh, fishing, um, fishing boat, uh, companies that take people out and charter fishing, they're even onto it and really happy, happy to push the cause. So um, yeah, so it's it's hopefully uh, things are looking up for our ray friends and our banjo shark friends. And um, and thank <coughs> you to you, Terry, and PT, and the divers of particularly around Port Phillip Bay who are just out there and and seeing this stuff and actually bringing it to public attention because otherwise we would just have no idea. Yeah, a, a friend of mine, Jane Bowman, a fantastic instructor, she took a video of a banjo sharks that are half alive under the pier and that really kind of went viral. Um, it was on the ABC and it was on a few, it was even on a UK, it was a Daily Mail site. So yeah, it's really got a lot of publicity. Excellent. Thank you. No worries. We'll, um, we'll continue to, um, to bring updates on this. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Mm. And I got a little bit of a dark story, too. Um, this is about a paper that was published that I, that I indeed spoke about on this program um, last year. I guess it was in the winter. This paper came out on the 3rd of June 2016 and appeared in the illustrious journal Science. We've talked about science and nature every now and then. They're the big journals that come out every week discussing all sorts of things in the scientific world. And there were two people, Una Lundstedt and Peter Eckloff, who got their paper into science entitled Environmentally Relevant Concentrations of Microplastic Particles Influence Larval Fish Ecology. A very interesting paper it was indeed, and it got lots of press, um, lots of general press, because what these people showed was um, that in European perch larvae, so they took one particular type of fish, put them in tanks, this is what they described in the paper, um, at Uppsala at a um, field station they had off um, associated with the University of Uppsala in Sweden 
And they showed that when they put little, kind of like little bean bag styrofoam balls, but tiny ones just under a tenth of a millimetre across, so 0.09 millimetre polystyrene beads, when they put them in the tanks with these fish, that they preferentially ate these styrofoam balls over fish which they chucked in there, which were just little artemia shrimp, little crustaceans that these things normally like to eat. Of the same size or are they, were they bigger? No, no, about the same size. Right. And they showed that these next beautiful pictures in the paper showing that, yeah, all these little plastic balls are inside these fish. And not only did they eat this non-nutritious food over real food, but they also showed that when they'd done this, that the fish were kind of screwed up, as as you'd imagine, in the sense that they wouldn't recognise normal environmental cues to say that there were predators hunting them down. Like, so, for example, there were these big pike that normally eat these fish and the fish were just like, oh, hi, pike, you know, love you, love you, and they just get nailed, they get eaten. These were pretty impressive and unprecedented results, as people said at the time. And indeed, in this issue of science, there was a perspective written on this paper. So the really science, nature, big Mm. papers, the big papers in those particular issues, four or five of those will have what's called a perspectives written on them, where one of the people who reviewed the paper, uh, big in the field, will point out to the general readers of the journal how important this is, so underscore the, the importance of it. So, it's you know, it was kind of top of the pops that week and indeed for that month in the field of, of fish ecology and lots of people talked about it. Chelsea Rochman, who did the perspectives on this said yeah I was quite impressed she said this was just amazing this was one of the first person people to ask this ecologically relevant question about plastics so you know when you get accumulate plastics and we've heard a lot about plastics and indeed it is a very big problem and still is I just want to say that right at the front. And I was going to ask that question too, just in terms of the context of this paper and being published at this particular point in time and, and this is what happens with science, that you have a thing of the moment that, you know, is is the new black of science. And microplastics is I'm putting asking that question. Sure as hell is and yeah. still is. Yeah, topical. Yeah, there's a, an enormous amount we don't understand about that. We're just understanding how much plastic there is out there. We're not sure of the effects that it's having on all the different organisms in the ocean, the flow-on effects, all sorts of stuff. There was also an article in the news this week about how microplastics are turning up in um, sea salt, like, you know, natural salt. Yeah. We're eating it, you know, through that as well. Wow. All over the place, which is why this very interesting paper appeared in Science in June. And indeed, the people that did this received, um, they got a few hundred thousand dollars chucked at them to do further work. However, however... At this field station, there were a number of other people working at the time, and one of them is a woman called Josephine Sunden. And she, towards the end of last year, started to get some press, indeed in the journal Science and another journal Nature, saying... I'm, I'm just going to read a few quotes here. Sunden remembers the moment she began to read the paper. She, thought, she said, I thought I was losing my mind. There was a description of this big experiment, and I had absolutely no recollection of it. So she was at the field station at the time and knew these people. Wow. who were supposedly doing this work. She got together with some other scientists who also knew the people who had published the work, including a guy called Timothy Clark from the University of Tasmania, and Timothy said, we thought about whether we should let it slide, whether it was too much for us to take on. Whistleblowing is risky. In other words, mm. they had this deep feeling that the work actually never happened. They said, you know, lots of things didn't add up. The study was would have required the simultaneous use of 30 aquaria of one litre each. 
Um, one of the people who was starting to think about whistleblowing had in fact taken photos in the laboratory where these experiments were done and there weren't 30 aquaria with one litre each and there weren't lots of little... There were many different species of fish in tiny little beakers that were there for about a week as opposed to the months that were described in the materials and methods of this paper to actually wow. do the work. God. This is not just fudging a few numbers. No, this is... Yeah, not that, not that's, that that's good either, no. but... Wholesale. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And Josephine Sundin, who was one of the big you know, whistleblowers, said she collected the juvenile park used in the study at a bog 65 kilometres away on the 30th of April 2015 and gave Lundstedt, who, this is the person who published the article and did the work, supposedly... I gave her only a few, not enough for the study. If Lundstedt got more park on her own, it's not clear how she travelled to the bog to get those park because Lundstedt doesn't drive, so she doesn't drive. Oof. Keep oh, that in the back of your mind, that she doesn't fittings. drive, OK? Right. This is quite interesting. Um, so they managed to convince Uppsala University to do an internal investigation on this to ask for the original data, which is what you need to do. Whenever you publish a scientific mm. paper, you have to hang on to that data. Mm. You have to put it in a public repository where people can get a hold of it so that they can repeat the experiments. Mm. This is what good science is based on. Not only that, you have to keep a really good backup at your university, not just on a, hard dri- on a mm. memory stick somewhere, but on some secure hard drive. This is one of the very basics of research integrity for all people who engage in publicly funded research. In fact, all all research. That wasn't there. The original data wasn't there. Um, remember I said that Lundstedt couldn't drive. They claimed that there was a whole lot of data on a laptop, but that laptop got stolen from, guess where? A car. Just <laughs> after <laughs> Lundstedt's car. Just after, um, after science started asking more questions mm-hmm. about this. Mm. And this person who published the paper, a little bit worryingly for us, um, got her PhD at James Cook University, published 15 papers with her supervisor at James Cook University, all of which were groundbreaking and remarkable and unprecedented, mm. including a study studies on ocean acidification, coral bleaching, um, the effect of lionfish behaviour, um, the way they interact with one another, all of these amazing papers, which... Her supervisor, Mark McCormick at JCU, is still standing by. He said, yeah, I've got no reason to doubt these. And indeed, no one does have any reason to doubt these, but mm. I would be a little bit worried. Anyway, on the 3rd of May, so last week, science did finally retract the paper. So it was retracted by the two original authors because they said there was just too much doubt about this and because science had said to them, well, you don't have the original data. Not only did they not have the original data... And then they claimed that it was, you know, stolen, as I said, from a car. But one of the other things you have to do when you do any kind of experiments, even if it's on fish larvae, is that you have to get animal ethics approval mm. from mm. the university where you are doing the work. They said in the paper, as indeed everybody does when they publish a paper which requires ethics, you have to have a statement in there saying, we have, this study has gone through Uppsala University animal ethics and we've got approval. They didn't didn't even go through the animal ethics at that oh. university. They didn't have, So there's all these things oh. that go to wow. say that this was oh, a so pretty sad. bad thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, um, but one of the really important things about this and the people who... So the woman that I was talking about before, Josephine Sundin, mm. one of the reasons she was very hesitant to blow the whistle was that she did not have tenure. I mean, people can... And by tenure, I mean she did not have a full-time job. <laughs> 
You don't want to start stepping on people's Mm. toes. Mm. One would like to think in the world of academia, as indeed in all walks of life, that you should be able to blow the whistle and not feel like you're going to get any, you know, payback for that or, you know, it's not going to harm your own job. Um, Which is nice in theory. Which is Mm. nice in theory, but often it doesn't happen. Anyway, this brave person and these other people did blow the whistle, Mm. pointed out all these discrepancies in the work and it has now been retracted. So... All we can assume is that work was mm. not actually done without proof of evidence. So many issues to come from this. It's There's an enormous number mm. of issues. So who's responsible for this getting published in the first place? So what normally happens in peer review with journals such as Science is that the editorial board will get the paper, they will have a look at it, say, yes, it's suitable. They will then send it out to two or three reviewers, reviewers. so so-called professionals in the field. And I say so-called because, and that's, I'm not don't want to be denigrating of the reviewers. I mean, it can be missed from time to time. But in the so it, it's the reviewer's job to check it. It's the journal's job to check that the reviewers have done a good job and that the animal ethics has been put in place. But in the end, it comes down to the integrity of the researchers. Mm. Whenever you publish anything, it's got there is a certain amount of faith that's put there that, you know, okay, what you're putting, what you're writing down and submitting to us, you in fact did do. And so it comes down mm. to that. Anyway, that's it's you know not a very cheery story, but I think a very interesting one for us to think about the reasons. Well, why why would she have done this in the first place? Mm. Fame, trying yeah. to get she's a job. Yeah. She's done it for herself. Yeah, done it for herself. Yeah, then destroys get, get, get a, a whole get career. A, get a paper in science. <laughs> well, mm. not only it destroys a career, but it also undermines a, a huge new genre. I don't know if genre is the right way, a whole new area of mm. critically important research Absolutely. at a global this is, level. This is mm. the thing that, that gets my goat, is that people will now think, oh, you know, microplastics in the ocean, all those papers are a bit dodge. Yeah, all the sceptics will come out and go, well, they're just making all this up. The sceptics that want to be sceptics, like, you know, and we know, you know, the people who, well, climate change is a good example. Yes. If there's any paper which sort of says, well, we're actually not sure about that, then they will jump, jump on, on that it. and use that. Autism and, and you can, you can put your tinfoil hat on here and go conspiracy theory. She got maybe paid shit load of money to try this sort of thing. To to in in I mean it's tinfoil hat she... territory. It is conspiracy <laughs> theory, but you know there's a lot of money in in a lot of stuff out there. Well, but I, I don't know who would have paid her to, to yeah. do this. That's a, I think it's more that she's probably trying to set herself up for fine. a future. Yeah, she wants a science paper. This is so well, common. She potentially wants an empire out of this. Yeah. And, is, anyway, and, and don't forget, and don't forget mm. there was one other person on the paper. This is the guy who was supervising her at the time. Yes. Um, but mm. he just... And this can happen as what you call the principal investigator, the person who got the money in the first place and has got a postdoc or a PhD doing the student, doing this study. He didn't look at the original... Asked to see the original data. He's he actually responsible. Have. He's the he one is. that actually... Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we need to end this here and we've run out of time to talk about your algae stuff. I've banged on about that for 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> so next time I'm in, I'll talk about the oldest fossil, which... Which, yeah, anyway, 1.6 billion years mm. we have good fossil evidence of red algae now, which <gasps> pushes the date back wow. about 400 million years. Um, I know things just become a blur and we talk about hundreds of millions of years, but this is very significant and I will talk about it in more detail later on. Excellent. But if anyone wants to read about it, you can get it online free in PLOS Biology. Um, just Google Bengston, B E N G S T O N. This was a paper that appeared on March the 14th. So it's a little Put bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a publicly available? Yes, it is. All right, we'll publicly do that. Available. But will you come in and speak at length in a couple of weeks, Dr. Beach? 
I would love to. Thank you. That would be fab. G'day, John Clark here. When I want to learn about all things wet and salty, which is a pretty much constant desire on my part, I tune into Radio Marinara Sunday mornings at 9am on 102.73 Triple R. Now, over the next few weeks, Museum Victoria's Chief Scientist, Tim O'Hara, will lead the first deep-sea exploration voyage upon the CSIRO, that would be the CSIRO's, brand-new marine research vessel, the Investigator. Travelling from Launceston to Brisbane, 40 scientists are set to spend 31 days examining life in the deep seas off the Australian east coast and, would you believe, in habitats that are currently completely unexplored. To tell us all about it, we're very pleased to welcome to Triple R, Tim O'Hara. Good morning. Hello, how are you? Well, <laughs> Thank you. How are you? Uh, very well. Hey, yeah, welcome back. To, thank you. Excellent. Now, I yeah. mentioned earlier that you had a whole crew with you, but it's actually your family. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is Mother's Day as well, and I have to hop on a plane this afternoon to go to Tasmania to pick up the crews, so we, we're sort of multitasking at the moment. Excellent. Well, thank you for spending some precious time with us. Yeah. Now, The Investigator. I was thinking it sounds like an Arnie movie with scientists. It's a, it sounds like a Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but it's a beautiful ship. It's almost 100 metres long. It's like nine storeys high. You know, it, it's got all these amazing equipment and gold balls kind of hanging off it. And it's, uh, and it's yeah. brand spanking new. Well, it's, I think it's two years old now. Well, yeah, okay. just about, yeah. yeah. So I was Still under warranty, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. So we were going to ask if this was its maiden voyage, but obviously it's no, not. No, no, it's done a few up to now. And it does climatology and oceanography and, um, you yeah, some biological research as well. So it tries to serve... It's Australia's blue water vessel. Okay. Yeah, and so the Australian government uh, funds it um, and CSIRO manages it. And for about six or seven months a year, they do public good science. So and this is one of those trips. And so with Museum Victoria um, being involved and with you leading it, how did this all come about? If you've got a, um, a federal government-owned research vessel, how has it come about that Museum Victoria is leading So you this? can apply for ship time. Okay. Just like you can apply for time on a Parks Telescope or the Synchrotron or any of these kind of national infrastructure things. So, mm. so the Australian government make it available and, and anyone can apply. But having said that, you need a lot of resources. You know, <laughs> I mean, not only do you get the ship time, you get no money. So you've got to get the money from somewhere else to pay for all the consumables, the flights, you know, this, the list goes on and on and on. It's a really major exercise. Oh, and you've got mm. 40 scientists. Is that kind of a standard um, size of, of group that would go out on no, something like this? I think it's like the this? biggest. We've, right. we've totally filled the ship. And we've got people from 14 different institutions coming and seven different countries. Oh, so we've got oh. Russians and French and Belgians oh. and... Yeah, it's, it's going to be Eurovision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do we get to vote? <laughs> well, we're hoping to have a karaoke night. No, 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 I don't know. But I bet you will. <laughs> There's going to be some yeah. good parties there. Those it's, Russians. It's actually pretty full on once you're on board. You know, 12 hour shifts starting at 2 a.m., going to 2 p.m., 2 p.m. 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, and it's 31 days straight, no days off. So it's essentially kind of, it sounds like, you know, you talk about, people sometimes call them cruisers, but they're not cruisers. <laughs> I call them a voyager and expedition because you actually yes. work really hard. There's no pina coladas on the back deck. No, I read, know, I read like in that. the press it's release. Dry ship. It's a dry it's, ship. Oh, oh. wow. I know. So you can wow. imagine this. We've got uh, scientists from the, the horror that we're all expressing here. <laughs> <laughs> the Russians will not cope. Uh, no, no. I'm, I'm retracting that request, John. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah, you've got people coming from all over the world. You know, some people are jet-lagged and you get on mm. the ship and it's moving a bit and a lot of people go off coffee and, and stuff when the, with the ship movement, at least for the first few days. And so everyone's got a caffeine headache. You know, you're drying out. It's, you know, you've, you've got to spend the first few days... Detox. Really being, yeah, 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 being emotionally sensitive to each other, you know, and then you get into a rhythm and it will be all okay. Is know. that where your role comes in as leader? Are you expecting you're going to have to iron out a few kind of personal... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we don't have a gangplank anymore. You know, we can't... <laughs> we do have a side crane off the vessel so we can keel haul in a very safe manner. You know? Complying with all occupational health yep. and safety yep. regulations. Tim, you mentioned 12-hour shifts before. So when you... Do you have to book, say, OK, I want this bit of kit on this particular day for this 12-hour yep. shift because there are 40 scientists on board, so those 12-hour shifts in, and presumably... Yes require an enormous amount of coordination and almost rostering before you even now you've sure. got all this set up. No, absolutely. So, you know, the the entire thirty one days is scheduled already. So, you know, on the we know at, you know, twelve hundred hours on the first day we're gonna do, you know, put down a certain piece of equipment at three hundred meters right here. Mm. And so it's all been planned. Of course it's all fiction because as soon as you get out there there'll be a bit of a storm or, you know, the, a winch won't work or something and it will all go out. But but you know, we actually have to keep yes, abreast of that all the time. So there's actually there's forty scientists, but there's also twenty crews. So you, it's a really, uh, you know, it's a, a, a process that you have to manage 60 different people, I guess, make sure it's all humming just nicely. And that's your job? Uh, yes, that's my job. I mean, there is a captain of the ship as well, so I don't have to worry about actually steering the vessel. But you're, <laughs> but, 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 but you're the science manager. No, I'm well. the science wow. manager. That's so I, I set the operations up. But, you know, there's a lot of experience on board. That's partly why we've got a lot of overseas experience, not just because they cover all, you know, um, they've got specialist expertise on all these deep-sea animals, but also because, you know, they know how their ship hums, they know what to do. So we've got to get, you know, we would put down a, a, a dredge right down to 4,000 metres, slowly haul it up. It takes about uh, three hours to haul up from the seafloor. Mm. Then we get it on deck and then, you know, once it's safe, then we all approach the net put the, the um, samples into a bucket, take them back into the lab and they're all then sorted right down to species and and uh, put in aquaria. I can and, imagine the excitement uh, of mm. approaching the net as, as yeah. you open it up. What have we got? Yeah. Mm. Like, yeah. And the first time, what's I've never seen that before in my life. Exactly. Just... It is exciting because, you know, most people, deep sea scientists spend a lot of time in labs, right? In, you know, you're looking at stuff that other people have collected. It's it's dead. It's in a bottle. You know, I mean, you can, you can see all its beauty down the microscope, but to see something live come up, to see it actually how it pulsates in, in normal kind of existence is just terrific. It's a really special experience for scientists. So. I don't know if you've seen Iron Chef, Tim. No. no. So um, in in, uh, in the show Iron Chef, there's a, um, ingredients are provided. It's kind of like MasterChef, but... In a, in a oh, yeah, 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 in yeah. a strange Japanese yeah, sort of way. Yeah, yeah but, but also the ingredients are provided and there's a bit of a bun fight. Everyone runs in and grabs the ingredients that they want to use. Are you anticipating something like that when the nets come up? Oh, there's a fight? Yeah, well, no, no, it's not a fight. How's it going to work? Are, are your scientists kind of going to be dancing around the edge and sort of saying, oh, I'd like that, that mm. particular well, piece of algae. <laughs> <laughs> that that, that kind of works That's for mine. me. Yes. No, no, we we're pre-organised what what goes to what people, so it's, it's, there's no fighting on board. I, I have heard about fights in other ships that haven't been quite so organised, but wow. um, no, there's not. I mean, we're just joking, but of course everyone's excited and they want to see what's on there. Yeah. And, and 
yeah, there'll be plenty of work for everyone, and it, you know, it's, but it is exciting. You mentioned, like you say. mentioned there were um, uh, fourteen different institutions being yes. represented. Yes. Um, can you take us through a few of those? Maybe sure. some of the ones that we might not be so familiar with. Okay, um, it was with four museums. So we've got the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. We've got uh, Queensland Museum in Brisbane. We've got the Australian Museum in Sydney, as well as Museum Victoria. So we've got all the East Coast museums. CSIRO, several divisions of CSIRO are coming, and then there's a lot of international ones as well. So we've got, uh, uh, yeah, the Natural History Museum in Paris, the Natural History Museum in London, uh, the Institute of Oceanology in Moscow, um, as well as quite a few universities. And the, the money is coming from Australia's Marine Biodiversity Hub, which is another important organisation, and, and um, that they really try and facilitate collaborative research uh, amongst a whole lot of institutions in Australia, everywhere from CSIRO, Australian Institute of Marine Science, Geosciences of Australia. So we've got ac um, access to a lot of expertise. Mm. Tim, I just want to ask you about what sort of depths do these dredges go down? And of that east coast, what's the where, where is the deepest point? Or do you know where the deepest point is? Um, the deepest point in the oceans are right down in the canyons. Um, but we won't be looking at canyons. We're looking at what's called the abyssal plain. Right. Um, the abyss, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's way down below three and a half kilometres. So, wow. you know, people have to really get their head around deep. You know, that's one of the problems with, with uh, marine science is the word deep. Because if you, if you ask a scuba diver what's deep, yep. they're going to say 40 metres, yep. you know. And if you ask a, a submariner what's deep, they're going to say two to 500 metres. We're going down 3,500 metres, wow. 4,000 metres. Mm. So it's really deep. But the weird thing is that most of the oceans on the planet are that depth. Mm. Right, and we're so conditioned to thinking that the marine environment are just being coastal. Yeah, but but most of it is deep ocean, and mm. so it's really the most uh, extensive habitat on the planet, but the most little known. So, yeah. now you've got a particular interest in um, benthic invertebrates, yeah. and um, particularly echinoderms and hyothuroids. Are you kind of anticipating anything that's going to kind of pique your Interest oh, it's, in it's, uh, sea cucumber heaven, that's the common name for holothurians, but, mm. uh, you know, because they, they exist in herds down there, right? Mm. They, mm. These are those big black things you see on a coral reef. Mm. Um, that's how most people experience them. But in the deep sea, um, they're really extensive. They're kind of like the garbage disposal units of the deep sea. So they, they just go and swallow the mud, you know, get all the organic stuff out and poo out the, the remainder. <laughs> so, But they live in, in gigantic herds. And I think someone's estimated once that the, the sea pig, which looks kind of... It doesn't even look anything like a pig, really, but it's called the sea pig. It's kind of this uh, a small uh, ellipsoid thing with lots of processes and spines coming off it. Um, it's probably the most common megafaunal animal on the planet. And is that, you know, a, type, is that, is that, is that a relative thousands. of starfish as well? Is that an yes, echinoderm? Yes, they are, yeah. Okay. So they all have tube feet. Mm. Just like uh, crinoids, feather stars and brittle stars and sea urchins. You, you mentioned the sea cucumbers. When you're pulling something up from a depth of 4,000 metres, and mm. I can't even kind of calculate what the pressure would be down yeah. there, but when yeah. you're dragging it up, even though it's taking three hours to get that dredge to the surface, how do those specimens look when they get to the surface? Are they kind of <laughs> exploded everywhere? Um, hopefully not. <laughs> no, no, they're not. Uh, generally, the, what, what actually does kill deep-sea animals is the heat. You know, if the water, surface waters are, are quite hot, like they're off Queensland, there might be 20, 22 degrees, that's what will kill them. So some of our equipment is actually designed to build, bring up some of the abyssal water along oh. with the animals. So cool. it actually, hopefully wow. it will come up in cool water. 
mm. and then we can put them directly into Aquaria and observe them and look at their bioluminescence and stuff. That's the plan. You know, um, unfortunately, it doesn't always work. But <laughs> can you maintain pressure? Can you capture them in a vessel down there and bring that up and try and maintain the pressure and put them in a pressurised thing on the boat? Um, so you can no, see them in no, their true no, natural habitat? A few people around the planet can do that. They have the aquarium facilities, but they look like gigantic safes with, you know, tiny little eye pieces, you know, because to maintain that sort of pressure, you need, yeah. you need a serious kind of metal and, you know... A bit like Sylvia Rell's diving Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, so, no, we don't do that. But interestingly enough, no, pressure doesn't kill them. Heat does. Huh. Yeah. We were talking earlier about uh, microplastic research um, and a particular paper which has just been retracted from science. Do you, will you have an opportunity to do any kind of research into plastics, not necessarily microplastics, but plastics? Sure. So we're, we're doing two things. We've got surface plankton nets, and so we're going to put those in. When we're doing some of the deep sea stuff, the ship's moving very slowly. It's ideal time to put in a, a few plankton nets as well. And uh, we're going to assess the amount of microplastics in that visually down the microscope by looking at um, for little pieces of plastic. But also we're going to take some deep sea sediments so that's we're going to grab a little piece of the seafloor and bring it to the surface, and then we're going to take a, a small part of that and, and actually chemically look for microplastics. So we'll have real data. Mm. Now, so right. you're, you're heading off this afternoon. You're off to Launceston. When when does the ship depart? Uh, the ship departs tomorrow at wow. 6 p.m. Oh, how yeah. exciting. Okay. Yeah. So it's all loaded, all set to go. Now all the people are arriving from all over the world, yeah. Brilliant. Yes. So you just get to walk on board. Yes. <laughs> Although a lot of people are going to Hobart, as I am. Right. And uh, so I've had to charter a bus to take us all to Launceston. So we've got a bus. We're going to call it the Abyssal Express. Nice. <laughs> and we're going, to, we're going to head across Tasmania. So we're going to pick people up from Launceston Airport, Launceston Town, and, and yeah, assemble all the crew. Excellent. Well, hopefully won't make too much of your last night of, um, of alcohol yes. um, availability <laughs> before you embark on I've your 31 very days. I've heard very nice, you know, distilleries in Tasmania. Oh, yes. Very nice. Yeah, good, good yeah. whiskey. Good whiskey. Yeah, yeah. good gin. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Now, will you please come back? Sure. When you're back? Yeah, anytime. When you've recovered? Yeah. And, um, and yeah, okay. come and tell us what you, f- what you find. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely definitely. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Good luck. Okay, thank Safe you. Safe travels. Yeah. I hope the... Um, I hope the seasickness doesn't get too much of a problem. No, so do I. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en tres triple R. Hey, yes. And um, big shout out to um, John Bailey for uh, sending a message. It was 1992 that Wish came out for The Cure. Thanks, Bailey. Thanks, Thank Jesse. Thank you very much. And um, also, I just wanted to very quickly mention um, the previous track by the Derbys. Um, a thanks to Tim Haynes, who is one of the uh, of the two members of the Derbys, and sent that one in. Triple R subscriber. Uh, so thank you, Tim, very much for sending that in. Great track. All right, Terry. Okay. Oh, so I just wanted to talk a little bit. Of, I mentioned uh, when I rang in, I think, was it a week or two ago, um, just about the fantastic uh, cuttlefish and uh, octopus that we're seeing at the moment in the bay. Um, and also, if you want to see giant cuttlefish, um, the best place to go is in Wyala mm-hmm. in South Australia. And uh, I, I haven't been there yet, but every year I keep saying, I must go and see the giant cuttlefish. Uh, so May this time of year is is the best time to go. And um, whereabouts yeah. whereabouts is Wyala in relation to Adelaide? Okay, so if you got Adelaide, you drive up, you get to Port Augusta, you keep going down past uh, York Peninsula, and it's on the next uh, Gulf. Um, so it's quite a drive from Melbourne, but um, it's it's well worth it. That you get. Um, I mean, if you're into photography, incredible. Plus the just the uh, 
you know, the behaviour is, is amazing mm. and they're huge. So, yeah, so that's a well well worth doing. But at the moment in the bay, we've had beautiful uh, weather, um, very calm seas. Guys yesterday out on a 55-metre wreck outside the heads had dolphins swimming all around them while they were sitting on deco as well as on the surface. Um, um, for the non-divers, sitting on deco Sitting means? on deco, so they're doing decompression stops. This means they have to sit there very boringly in 15-degree water for about half an hour. So having <laughs> dolphins come around is uh, pretty exciting. Nice way to it? pass the time. Yeah. Um, so I just want to quickly talk about um, the octopus. We've, we've seen a lot of sand octopus and blue ring octopus and the beautiful um, Maori octopus, um, especially around the end of Rye Pier. If you swim out um, at the end of Rye towards what's called Elsa's Reef, as a little artificial reef has been put up there, and it, uh, it has a number of octopus, so it's a great place to, um, to see them. Water temperature moments about 15 degrees. So, um, yeah, but you, you uh, can see some of the, um, the females there. Um, the female octopus is a very good mother for, for Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lays up to um, 7,000 eggs in total, clusters of about 3 to 12 eggs. Um, she looks after them um, for a few weeks and uh, keeps them well oxygenated. And uh, when they're about to hatch, she'll squirt water all over them mm. using the siphon um, until the eggs are hatched. And then, of course, once the eggs are hatched, the female drifts away and and um, dies, unfortunately. But so she's but she is a very good very good mother. And at the moment, uh, in at Blairgowrie, you can also see cuttlefish um, near the Operation Sponge area. Um, and you will get a chance to um, see some of the eggs hanging um, underneath um, some of the pylons. So they're beautiful, beautiful animals. And, um, you know, of course, the octopus uh, and the cuddles are so intelligent. And so you can have really lovely um, interactions with them uh, when you're diving there. Fantastic. Thanks, Terry. No worries. You take some great photos. We should put some of those up on our website. Yeah, there's a lot of seahorses around at the moment, actually. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy to happy to do that. Where do you, where do you see dragons or...? or- other seahorses? Uh, at the moment, big-bellied seahorses. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot around uh, rye. I saw about five at rye, so, yeah. Um, so they're about um, 11... Oh, about 12 centimetres long, so they're quite big, yeah. But definitely weedy sea dragons. We still obviously see them. Um, they're really good at Flinders Pier and also at Portsea Pier. But, um, uh, yeah, the big-bellied seahorses are, are magnificent. Are you diving today? I am. I'm going to Mordialic Pier. So nice. I haven't been there before. And the visibility in the south, in the northern part of the bay at the moment is, is amazing. So, um, yeah, hoping to see a few different things there. Great. Hey, thanks, Terry. No worries. And um, thank you, Dr Beach. That's a pleasure. And thank you, Nerida. Thumbs up. Thank you, Kent. He's in the green room. I think he's going to come in and start um, weaving his technical magic for radiotherapy doctors who are coming in shortly. Take you through to 11 when Shane and the Einstein and Go-Go team will then... Uh, take over from there. Um, thank you very much to our guest today, Tim O'Hara. Uh, I think that was it. Thank you, Tim. It was. <laughs> <laughs> On next week's program, Angeline's going to be in. We're going to be speaking with John Donald from Deakin University about the plans for this uh, wonderful new research uh, facility down at uh, at Queenscliff mm. um, at the, the previous uh, labs that, are, that were set up some years ago and are about to be used again. So it's going to be wonderful. So we'll be speaking with John about that. Uh, all sorts of other things that we'll bring to you. So uh, have a wonderful Sunday. Happy Mother's Day to my mum. Happy Mother's Day, mum. She's a triple R subscriber. In her own right, she'll be listening. <laughs> I'll catch you next week. Bye for now.
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.